From redlining to voter suppression, there are historical patterns to how people of color's fight for equity has been blocked. On this episode, we dig into those patterns that continue to impact our communities today. It's our favorite time of the day again. Welcome to Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everybody else. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General for the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I share through this podcast are strictly my own and should not be attributed to that of my office. I'm Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora and Senior Partner at Dendros Group. I'm Donald Eubanks, Associate Professor in the School of Social Work at Metropolitan State University and Cultural Consultant. And I'm Halil Lee, owner of The Other Media Group. Well, let's jump in. There's always so much to talk about in current events. Uh, and today we're going to try to just frame this in a way that I think um, presents a way to look at things a little differently, but it will all make sense, I hope, to our listeners once we uh, draw the connection through these different issues. So what we're talking about today are predictable patterns of resistance to people of color fighting for equity. And certainly there are historical examples that we will be discussing, but also more frequent and more current examples that are manifesting themselves in our day-to-day lives. Uh, Everything from the economy to voting to education, the list goes on. And on. So we're just going to jump in now. Um, and who who wants to get us started? Well, one one of the things that I do um, with young people and that I work with, and and with with um, folks I work with and clients, and in, in, in my daily practice as a consultant, is um, helping to make sense of historical patterns. And one of the things that we often overlook is that every major movement for, towards um, civil rights or equal rights or or equity um, in our history has been met and has 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 been um, alongside predictable patterns of resistance from dominant cultural folks or folks who 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 feel like and this is an important distinction you know because oftentimes we are made to feel like some something is going to really disrupt our lives as it is even when it has no bearing or connection to it whatsoever. Um, so as you, you know, as you let us out loose, the first thought uh, that came to mind is for some historical context is what happened after Reconstruction. We fight this bloody war, which eventually over time became about a moral cause to end slavery. So you have this period of Reconstruction. You actually start to see some major advancements uh, in its particular black communities. Um, and then poof. At the end of Reconstruction, you have the rise of the most virulent terror group <laughs> that we most of us are aware of in the Ku Klux Klan, which is birthed um, to and out of this period where the soldiers leave. There's no longer protections for folks of color. And then all of a sudden you have this huge reign of terror, lynchings, um, community terrori- terrorizing that happened to kind of redress and reset the, the boundaries uh, that were around during slavery. And then, of course, you have that further in policy afterwards with, with vagrancy laws and other things that um, began to incarcerate uh, people of color across the nation. And I say that broadly. 
um, to kind of re- replace a, a labor force that had just been lost, that built the entire wealth of our nation. And so I think that there are very specific historical examples of folks using or resisting um, advancements or even the presence of advancement of folks of color. I, could, I would also in, in turn add the Japanese internment, right? You have Japanese communities who, who are thriving um, on the West Coast, and all of a sudden, because of the fears of Japan, we have the internment camps that happen and then people taking over the homes of the folks who used to live in the same houses. One thing that, that you've said a few times, Anthony, and that was fear. Mm-hmm. And how that's a theme throughout all this is these, the actions taken by dominant culture is often led by fear. Mm-hmm. Perce- real or not, real or perceived. Right. Exactly. That's, that's, that's important. I would point to additional historical markers uh, in this discussion, and the first of which would be redlining. When mm. Black folks began to have the opportunity to buy homes by way of wealth accumulation, redlining became prevalent around our country. And while some people might think, well, redlining is done, it's not. I mean, the vestiges are still there. We know that the largest transfer of wealth in any family happens with the sale of the home or or being uh, deeded to future generations. And we know through a project at the University of Minnesota that so many of the homes still in the metro area have what are called racial covenants. So while redlining may have been outlawed, outlawed rather, it's still a prevalent practice that is happening by way of either racial covenants <clears throat> or just outright redlining that has not collectively then sought out in terms of investigation and, and, and legal cases then brought to challenge those practices of the various banking and lending institutions that are part of it. Uh, and then I, I would also point to just, you know, what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma with the massacre. Mm-hmm. We just came up on a centennial anniversary. I mean, this year, this in the last week marked 100 years since that. And you think about just a horrific. I, I can't even say this. I mean, I just just the horrific burning and destroying of the properties, of the wealth, of the businesses, just gutting out an entire area for no other reason but hatred. Uh, and then you've got, you know, miscegenation laws, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and precluding and, and preventing folks from marrying outside of their own race because somehow that was going to endanger the white race. And it wasn't limited to blacks and whites. It also extended itself to Japanese marrying whites or Chinese marrying whites, right? I mean, the, the country is replete with having so many examples of systemic changes from a public policy standpoint that have been implemented to really safeguard the white space and the safety of that um, across our country. There, there's, um, you know, it makes me think of, and, and Don, you had brought this up in a conversation before, um, you know, even when, when we challenge state, when we challenge um, the nation, you know, I gave the example of Reconstruction, you know, that happened after um, several moments where Native communities bound together to challenge. Um, it makes me think of 
uh, specifically the Cherokee Nation's challenge to the um, U.S. government over the Indian Removal Act that was passed. Cherokee Nation won. However, Andrew Jackson said, um, you know, John Marshall has made his decision, let him enforce it, even though that's the fort, the job of the executive branch. So um, even in spaces where we follow the systemic procedures, we win the legislation. I think this is important to understand that that there's a, there can be a retaliatory um, uh, resistance that comes as a result of that. And, and then, of course, in Minnesota, since we're in Minnesota, 1862 uprising where where um, Dakota peoples had to reassert their own rights because we failed and violated our own treaties with them. And so they had to return to the lands to survive because we weren't coming through, sparking a conflict that allows for the U.S. Army to come in. They're, 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 this pattern is particularly strong, um, all the way down to, to you know, the tiki torches in the streets. You know, when we think about the uprisings of uh, centered around Ferguson and all those other things, and then you have you know, groups of, of white men and tiki torches who are marching in, in, in resistance to a perceived threat or a res- perceived erosion of, of their own rights or statuses, which don't have basis in fact, but all we need is the perceived threat to face some of this retaliatory behavior. I would venture to say that it doesn't even have to be as dramatic as that, mm. meaning... You, you know, let, let's just kind of use, and this, and this is a much broader, I think, broader subject that I'm introducing, but, you know, let's just look at how the first reaction we got as a result of uh, the Biden presidential election and when, and that whole thing was a result of efforts in Georgia, right, to turn out the vote. Mm. And... The, and a lot of that turnout to vote was in communities of color. And this was even after Georgia removed um, and restricted where people could vote. Imagine we only had one polling place for Minneapolis and St. Paul. That's how they did that in Georgia. They had removed so many polling places through the effort reaching out into black communities in Georgia and getting out the vote, they swung that vote in favor of Biden. And then immediately after the election, Georgia begins this onslaught of states passing these restrictive voting rights, you know, picture IDs, um, I, I think Georgia even went as far as uh, making it against the law to offer somebody food or water if they have to stand in a long line waiting to vote. I mean, think about that, you know? So we see this this predictable pattern again. I, I, don't, I don't think it's a broadening at all. Actually, I think you just deepened it is the word that I would use because, um, you know, the right to vote that was guaranteed in the Constitution, but then the way that we resisted or the way that we worked around that is by adding voter tests and grandfather clauses and other things that made it harder for folks to vote in order to change uh, the trajectory. I would offer up um, to your analysis, Anthony, is poll tax and oh, yeah, the charging right. of poll taxes, you know, back in the day. Yeah, you know, you, you now have the right to vote as a black person, as a black voter, but you gotta you gotta pay a poll tax in order to do that. 
when integration becomes a thing, in order to resist integration, we see folks coming forward with policies and changes that take away city resources, that, that, that you know, pools that now have to be integrated because of the new laws. Well, I'm not going to staff that pool. And we start to see city services just in resistance to the passage of integration laws. So I, I see it all as connected. Well, and school integration also brought then, it's my understanding, the equation for how schools are funded. So mm. schools that have a largely well-to-do middle income, higher income set of um you know, neighborhood and, and families that live there, particularly in Minnesota, those are the schools that are then funded at higher rate per student than the low income families and the low income schools are. So having these institutional systemic barriers that on its face doesn't seem to raise any type of uh, question but certainly when you look at it in its totality, you understand that indeed it is. If you've never had the Supreme Court of, the, you know, of our country had to decide your rights, then you've got privilege. Because if you think about the different um, segments of our population, whether by race or ethnicity or national origin or gender or disability status, I mean, all of those protected um, classes have at one point had to go to the U.S. Supreme Court for some relief because of the systemic issues and barriers that have been put forth by the local policymakers, whether at the municipal level, the county level, or at the state level. Um, and heck, for that matter, at the federal level as well. Mm-hmm. I think that um, in addition to fear, the other thing I notice a lot is just the, the trying to keep the status quo and being afraid of, of progress, right? So I, I feel like every time we make a little bit of progress, like the voter suppression, um, you know, getting uh, getting folks out to the polls, giving rides, translations, that kind of stuff, um, there's always pushback. There's always pushback because the second that things don't turn out the way that dominant um, culture, not just dominant culture, but those in power, when it doesn't go their way, they use whatever they can to bring it back to the way it was or the way they think is right or the way they think is equitable, um, which is not, which is always very different from the way that we as people of color see equity. Uh, it, it, it never lines up. And so there's this hard pressed kind of stubborn even way of no, 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 we, we can't change. We can't change. Don't fix what's not broken just because it's not broken for them. You got me thinking, Lee, um, about the semantic dance. Um, you know, Don, you said earlier about it not having to be as dramatic as some of the some of the examples that we've given. There, there are very subtle ways in which this is uh, these patterns of resistance are played out. I, I want to bring forward the passive iterations of it, right? So, Luz, you brought up redlining earlier. So let's take many parts of our, our cities and in parts of, of our suburban communities had racially restrictive covenants. You see the resistance to the um, loosening, right? Many of these towns that had very strict um, racially restrictive covenants and, and, and procedures that said you basically had to leave um, the city by sundown, right, or, or face consequence. And many of the lynchings that we have seen over the course of the years across all of our communities, Native, um, Latinx, 
um, even so, even looking at what was happening in San Francisco, um, as 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 the growing Chinese community began to to thrive, you started to see um, these these violation of these covenants, whether de facto or de jure, um, resulted in real carnage. But you couldn't do that legally after a certain point, you know, or at least there was a re- legal recompense on the books. And so you had to do it in a different way. And so I can police you out. I can make it feel really uncomfortable or unwanted. We have stories. I have family stories of folks making sure that they don't go to certain parts of town. You've got cities that were sundown towns that remain almost 90% white, even though the cities around them, contiguous to them, have have 30 to 40 percent uh, uh, racial difference of them. Can you? I mean, just imagine being bordering a city like Minneapolis and maintaining the demographics that were on the books uh, when uh, racial restrictive covenants were allowed. There are patterns in schooling, right? Identifying, you know, quote unquote, bullying or problem kids um, falling across racialized lines by areas in our city that are supposed to be, quote unquote, progressive or, quote unquote, you know, um, more inclusive. And yet the data that we see on the outside, not just on youth attainment, but in in referral rates to the office by folks who are supposed to be carrying this ideology remain starkly racist. Teacher unions defending that our kindergartners are being suspended for behavior if you're black or brown, but Mm. for the same behavior, they're not being suspended if they're white children. And, you know, we've I have scores and scores of examples of that, having friends of mine who are former superintendents and former executives within metro area schools that have said this out loud publicly uh, many, many times over. And black boys and girls being referred to um, behavioral disorder classes and groups when, in fact, if you spend the time with them, you find out that they're academically advanced and gifted and that the teachers, instead of challenging them and, and seeing their brilliance, are in fact ignoring that and instead referring them over to emotionally behavior, you know, disturbing type of consequences for them, right? I have a personal example of what you just described involving my aunt and a niece. And she attends elementary school in Hinckley, Minnesota. A couple of young boys were told her that they uh, wanted to touch her breast to see if they were real, right? This is grade school. And she kept pleading with them to leave her alone. You know, don't touch me. Don't touch me. And in the past year, um, my aunt had taken her to uh, Twaikondo lessons. And so she had taken Twaikondo and these uh, boys, you know, continued and and uh, reached out and, um, you know, grabbed her. And she turned around and gave them one of her little Twaikondon kicks and knocked them both down. The, uh, the response from the school, the principal, was uh, my aunt was called in because she was being disciplined, having to sit in the principal's office while the boys were allowed to go to class. And when my aunt... Um, expressed her um, anger at the fact that these young boys were sexually harassing her daughter. 
the principal's response was, uh, boys will be boys. My niece is Native American and these boys were white. Was the and principal a male or a female? Female. Ugh, even worse. But, but that, even that, worse. Underscores, that underscores this, this point that it doesn't have to be overt. It can be omission. It can be denial. It can be, there are many different ways in which this, this, this pattern of resistance can, can show up when people of color try to assert themselves for their own rights and justice and often get vilified for their own advocating for what we're supposed to be moving towards. I think that's where, you know, um, allyship comes into play, right? And and um, being able to have a, a support, folks to support you. The same situation happened to a former neighbor of mine who reached out to me that her daughter, uh, it happened here on the east side of St. Paul, where um, a white boy touched her Hmong daughter's butt. Um, and it became a he said, she said situation. However, the boy's mother was called and my neighbor, she was not told of the situation until her daughter came home crying. And my and my former neighbor was like she didn't know what to do she remembered that i did some organizing she found me on facebook and was like hey can you help me and you know it took a community it took a bunch of us i was like i know people on the school board i know people who work in education uh, you know here are the things that we can do but without her having reached out to me um who knows what would have happened? Nothing would have happened. But because we got together this group of, of people to say, hey, this is not okay, without all of us coming together to put that pressure on the principal, they were just not going to even discuss what happened or tell anybody what happened. They thought it was no big deal, but it is a big deal. It's a big deal for women. Um, and it's a big deal when, you know, the white male principal is siding with the white boy um, after he had touched this girl. And, and then we wonder why we have a rape culture in our, in our country, right? Um, exactly. With those, with those two examples that you, Don, and Haley just shared as well. As we're talking about these patterns of resistance, let's also think about what's going on nationally and internationally with respect to activism. And, oh, yes. Right. So there's even more content here to, to really tie these together. We know that younger Americans favor CEO activism. Right. And as we think about what's going on in our in our country with various movements, with climate change, uh, certainly with voting, uh, with systemic racism, only 25 percent of boomers think that CEOs should be part of the activism that I just mentioned. And the younger that people then um, are, the more they expect CEOs to become activists, right? So Gen Z's, that, that statistic goes up to 31%. Millennials, 46% of millennials expect that um, and favor CEO activism. Gen Z's, that's up to 52%. The signing of the Declaration of Independence in 1776, one third of those who signed, and we know that we're all men, right? One third were business leaders. From 1910 to 1940, business leaders and their activism helped power the US high school movement and establishing the high schools in the US. From eight, 1985 to 1990, 
Over 200 U.S. companies cut ties, all ties with South Africa uh, that led then to the end of apartheid, right? So Mm -hmm. our country has a history of having and expecting CEOs and companies to be active in these issues. And when we think about the issues that we're talking about right now, with particular emphasis on voting, as the browning of America continues to take place, the voter suppression efforts not only will continue, but they're going to continue to get ramped up. And so let's even talk about how what that looks like with expectations of companies and their CEOs to become active in this space and what we do with our buying power as BIPOC consumers. And to your point earlier, Haley, of allies and co-conspirators, I like to use co-conspirators because for me, a co-conspirator is going to be much more active and proactive in the space. But I want to hear your thoughts on that. After the Depression, um, a lot of jobs that were deemed black jobs became open market because people needed to find as many jobs as they could. A local playwright, James Williams, um, wrote a play around um, three generations of fathers in his family, starting with his his grandfather who was assassinated. Um, We started to find that companies were standing and siding with their black workers in many of these areas because, one, they were experts at that job. And to train in and bring in new folks and push them off the job wouldn't work. And, of course, you also had this union conundrum where um, a lot of the unions uh, in these areas weren't necessarily supportive of black rights, but they couldn't violate their support of their workers if they even if the black uh, workers were even allowed to join those unions. And so. Um, you end up with, in this particular case, um, um, the, the Williams murder um, it was part of a string of assassinations in a rail yard in Vicksburg, Mississippi, where the Illinois rail line cited and, and actually went after uh, the killers uh, because of this reason, this intersection of business prosperity and race. The assassinations were opposed by corporations who were losing very skilled, their, their, their bottom lines were on the line. That's an interesting pattern. Like these are some of the stories we don't we don't know about in our historical record. That just to add to um, the the activism by uh, companies. Well, and and even now there we see this right. Companies coming out with um, saying they support Black Lives Matter or that they support you know uh, justice for George Floyd. Right. All of these companies and organizations came out with their own statements um, in the last year or two. Um, and the, the pushback was always, you know, folks saying, well, I'm not going to shop there anymore. But I think once these companies do the math, um, being inclusive increases their bottom line more than being exclusive, even if they don't really agree with whatever equity statement they're making. Um, it, it comes down. It always comes down to, to money. The, the economic case for equity. I mean, this this is. This is a, a big thing right now, you know, in, in you know, there, there's one thing to have an ideology that you might be trying to defend because somebody has somehow made you feel like um, what's happening is an assault on your your world. In fact, in, in Luce, I've heard you speak to this before, that major advancements in civil legislation, civil rights uh, legislation has also benefited uh, white communities. And yet we see these patterns of resentment to communities who win civil rights legislation as somehow as if 
folks aren't going to benefit from having a more just society or, or society with more fair rules in it. And, and it's a thing that always serves me up with a healthy d- bit of cognitive dissonance. That's right. The biggest beneficiary to the Civil Rights Act in terms of segmentation of our country are white women with respect to uh, advancement and protections with regard to gender discrimination, with regard to wages and, and, and all of that, right? And Haley, what you were talking about earlier as well, I mean, one of the biggest movements and supporters in terms of immigration and trying to really have a US-friendly approach to immigration here domestically are a lot of the farm companies, the landscapers, you know, these are roofing companies, these are segments and and sectors of our business community that know that immigrants are the only ones willing to do those jobs for those wages, right? Certainly they could probably find other people, but they want to keep their profit margins the way they are. In order to do that, they need to suppress the wages. And unfortunately, the ones that are most willing to work under those conditions, which often enough end up being subpar and dangerous, uh, but also lower wages are immigrant communities. But when I was engaged in immigration public policy uh, for the city of St. Paul, we, uh, we engaged them heavily uh, to defeat some anti-immigrant proposals at the state uh, legislature uh, during that time. Put your money where your mouth is, right? If we want change, we need to demand change of the different businesses. Uh, and I would go beyond that. I mean, it's also the anti-maskers. You know, I mean, initially there were plenty of companies that were not willing to enforce the mask mandate in Minnesota and across our country but as they began to see that many customers refused to then patronize those businesses, more and more there was a willingness to take strong stances to enforce the mask mandate across our country. Well, there's also the losses that happened, of course, too, right? For, for folks who weren't participating, you saw rates of COVID taking your workforce out from under you. And so, you know, you're forced to see things differently when it affects you. I'm also thinking about, about you know, in terms of greater Minnesota um, and in parts of the Midwest, right? Resistance to Native peoples standing up and advocating for what should be yours under treaty or just should be yours in terms of, of, of the environmental stewardship of the area has seen its own resistance. Folks from across the Midwest have stories of growing up and having their communities come up with very hurtful and, and damaging language and beliefs about Native peoples because the assertion of their own rights were perceived, again, not data-backed, but perceived to have some kind of bearing on their own fisheries. You know, I think of the recent fight um, with our last governor in, over Malax, over those fisheries. So I think they're, they're, these all are indicative of predictable patterns that arise when people of color and, and indigenous communities assert their own rights. Even if objectively everybody would say, well, they're in the right or legally <laughs> courts will side with with folks saying, yeah, they're absolutely right. You find another narrative is created somehow that tries to revisit the 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 the, the villainy back on the people who are advocating for their own rights. Well, I think also there's, you know, as we talk about allyship and and co-conspirators and these patterns, one thing we need to also recognize is the the divide and conquer. 
route, right? Where where our communities are turned against each other, um, and as we're busy fighting each other on issues, the dominant culture goes on with everything that they've been doing for the last 400 years, <laughs> right? And so, you know, our understanding of, you know, the um, Black Revolution and Asian Revolution are connected, but we still have this Asian-Black conflict hmm. that is happening because we don't under- we're not understanding that everything is interconnected and that our our freedom is your freedom and your freedom is our freedom, but we're pinned against each other. Um, the same with poor people. Poor people are, pin- are pinned against immigrants, right? To say, oh, they're stealing your jobs. Um, or, I mean, there's just so many examples of how uh, we're being pitted against other groups that are also fighting for equity so that the same old, same old um, that has been benefiting dominant culture continues. I think about the the brown power movements, the Chicano movement, and, and you know, against uh, forced English um, education, right? With the brown berets, um, with Bobby Verduga and Jose Lara, like there, <laughs> you have multilingual education that is resulting in um, Chicano students achieving at high rates and then school boards making decisions as they call that out and as things are uh, are moving in, during that time um, who are making are passing decisions to to have English only education and then you have the school walkouts that happened this is in a space where students were thriving nobody was suffering by this multilingual education in fact folks were thriving and then yet we still turn around and, and put forward in this place school policies um, that are trying to shift things. What is the purpose? What is the impetus? Um, and so, you know, Lee, you're, you know, what you were saying made me think of the fact that one of the patterns of resistance that we see happens before there's even a, an assertive problem. And the irony on that last example, Anthony, is the proliferation of these language immersion schools throughout Minnesota and elsewhere around our country, right? It's okay. So if a bilingual child wants to speak their native tongue and, and language in school, that's problematic. And you have this, this English-only movement in schools as well across our country, but yet you have these language immersion schools that well-to-do families recognize is so important for students to learn a second language. So it's just something that doesn't make any sense but for the fact that the perception of that fear, right, that that ends up being something that continues to, to be a threatening force somehow. You know, uh, working in, in the K-12 system, one of the things that students, when we get into these talk circles, would bring forward, particularly Somali students, um, uh, Hmong students, is, is this assumption that you belong in ELL or, you know, some English language um, adjustment school-wise just by nature of you showing up. Uh, you know, I remember, I'll never forget one kid saying, I spoke better English than half the other kids uh, and then half the white kids, but yet I'm being put in ELL right away. And I, in, in this kid in particular, um, did not speak her home language yet. English was really her first language. If I take four years of a language, I get this nice shiny certificate at the end. Not not even being uh, fluent in a language, right? So so I only get the benefit of by of being bilingual, being praised for my multilingual status if I do it through 
our systems as they are, not if I come to you speaking one or even two languages, right? The presence alone can be assertive enough to elicit uh, patterns and assumptions that come along as resistance to somehow this is going to change what I get. Like that zero sum mentality that, that like, like uh, equality and equity and prosperity is a pie that, that there's only a certain amount of slices to, which just is not true. Well, and I'll, I'll say one more thing on that note with English language learners and students coming in who have quote unquote foreign names like yours mm-hmm. truly. It's my understanding, having worked in the educational space for over 10 years from a public policy standpoint, that the reason that school districts, at least in Minnesota, often do that, even though the student is not in need of that service, is because the school district gets a higher per student allotment dollar wise than they would otherwise. So there's a financial incentive to do that which is one of the most perverse things that I found out doing education public policy for the 10 years or so that I did it. And I I would close off by saying that it can be incredibly daunting and overwhelming to be on the receiving end of any one of those, much less all of those at one time, right? If you think about members in our community and the different avenues that they are navigating on a daily basis. We're talking about the educational system. We, we're talking about um, employment. We're talking about housing. We're talking about financial institutions. We're talking about just government. And at any point in time, it can be overwhelming for our BIPOC communities to have to a, navigate any one of those systems in addition to just day, the daily grind that we find ourselves in Um, And having then to survive that and to be strategic about how to respond to that. Uh, So as we think about ways to move forward, I'm just encouraging us all to stay alert uh, and to really own your space in this. Right. Own your voice and ask yourself, what are ways that I can begin to challenge what's going on and who can I turn to? Who are the Khalees? that I know that can activate community, you know, with a a call or a post on Facebook. Uh, We're all gonna need that at one point or another. And to Haley's point earlier, we're all in this together. Uh, So with that, I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General, State of Minnesota. All the opinions and comments I've made are to be attributed only to myself and not to my employer. Anthony Galloway, Senior Partner of Dendros Group and Executive Director of Arts Us. Don Eubanks, Associate Professor of Social Work at Metropolitan State University. And I think I must mention that this will be the last podcast that I will be an Associate Professor as I retire at the end of this week. Congratulations, Don. (laughs) So I just thought I would mention that because the next time you hear me, I'll be Don Eubanks, Cultural Consultant. Yay, congratulations. Uh, And I'm Halil Lee, owner of the Other Media Group. This program is a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the Other Media Group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.